1: Ah, Hurtel Show. It's Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to March, folks. March the 1st. February is done. It's in the books. Spring's right around the corner. Hang in there. We're just about there. Lots going on in the world. We're going to try to turn down the noise on some important issues today. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the charity giving that's going on in Ukraine, how to avoid some of the really nasty, ugly stuff out there, how to avoid the scams, what to look for. Because we're in this uh, frame of mind where we just throw money at everything. So if you want to give money to Ukraine, we're going to talk about a good way to do this. But this is universal advice. that applies to anything, politics, campaigns, fundraisers. Good way to sort through charity giving. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Great story to end the program. An 11-year-old boy who was a pediatric cancer survivor starts a pediatric cancer charity. We've seen a couple of these on the show where kids that have survived go on to do great things and give back. Love covering those stories. Also, we're going to talk about some of the performative parts of the Ukraine crisis. Uh, A lot of serious business going over there. We're going to start the show off talking about it. But folks in America got a little time on their hands. They get silly. They get performative. They start doing things like banning vodka and banning Moscow mules. Only problem is Moscow mule was invented in New York City. So you're not really accomplishing anything. We'll talk about all that a little bit on the program. We're going to talk politics. Uh, We're going to continue uh, on this election season for the midterms, we're going to go to the actual states. We're going to go to the people who are covering things as they are happening. The North Carolina Senate race is going to be one of the real highlighted races of this season. It's going to be an extremely expensive race. It's already breaking records. Uh, An interesting cast of characters in that GOP primary. They had their first debate over the weekend. Our friend Brooke Medina is back. Uh, She was in the room. She helped put the event together. We're going to break it all down for you. How the three candidates on the stage did. How the fourth candidate that was not on the stage and the podium was empty because he didn't show up was one of the big stories of it, and we'll also talk through the candidates, their positions, how things landed in the room with some of the most uh, plugged-in voters of the GOP, what they thought, how it landed, what it means to the race. We'll get into all that with Brooke Medina in just a little bit. First, we're going to start uh, more Russia and Ukraine. We just can't get away from the story. Russia is now committing out-and-out war crimes. Um, first of all, Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine was, by definition, a war crime, a war of aggression, by the definition, by the international IOC, by the UN, by anything that matters. A war of aggression is war crime. There were those of us who had hoped this would be a limited thing, if not brinksmanship, because the propensity of the Russian army and of Vladimir Putin's forces to commit war crimes once they get going. How do we know this? Because they keep doing it. They've done it in Georgia, they've done it in Chechnya, they did it in Crimea, they did it in Aleppo and other places in Syria along with their Syrian buddies. They leveled a city in Aleppo in Syria, multi-million of people that live there, and they reduced the entire city almost to rubble. But we didn't care about that for some reason, we didn't really talk about it that much, didn't make a lot of news in the Western outlets, we'll talk about why that is some other time. But it was Russia and their mercenaries and their military advisors helping the Syrians do that. They've done it in Georgia. They've done it in other places. Anywhere the Soviet military goes, bad stuff happens to innocent people. So we knew once they went into Ukraine in force, it was a matter of time before it started happening there. And now we have all the reports in the world that it is happening. Indiscriminate fire, artillery fire, rocket attacks, all kinds of bad stuff is going on in Ukraine now. This is something we very much worried about. Civilian casualties. These are big cities. Ukraine has 44 million people in it. This is a big country with some big cities. Uh, Kiev is just shy of 3 million people. Uh, Kharkov, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but the second city that is heavily engaged with the Russian forces, that's another large city with a large population. The question has always been, if Vladimir Putin doesn't get his way militarily somewhat quickly, if he does not get his way with a quick victory, then what? The unfortunate truth is we know what the Russian military and Vladimir Putin is capable of. This is the guy who poisons journalists and dissidents with a nuclear type poison to make sure everybody knows that it was him that ordered it and did it. This is the guy in Vladimir Putin who will just straight up have dissidents and dissenters political opponents shot on bridges in broad daylight just to make sure everybody knows that he did it. that's not counting all the little people that don't have names that just tend to disappear. These are very bad actors for that matter. Now that he's invaded Ukraine, the name Vladimir Putin should never be uttered without the word war criminal attached before after or in the middle as a nice little nickname, because that's what he is. He was already that, but now we have enough proof that nobody could ever deny it and they can't argue the point anymore. The mask is fully off. And now in Ukraine, The Ukrainian people are going to pay for it if he doesn't get his way, if they cannot get a quick victory and the Ukrainians have held out so far, even though a lot of the Russian military hasn't gotten into the battle yet because their logistics suck so bad, but we've already covered that. What are they going to do? Is he going to order the indiscriminate fire into these cities? Are they going to level cities to try to get a victory here? Are they really going to kill scores and scores of civilians? History tells us the Russian military is more than capable of doing it. History tells us that Vladimir Putin is more than capable of ordering it. And we know that the Ukrainians may not have a choice because the ugly reality of war is if you're fighting an insurrection against an invading force, rubble's a lot easier to defend than a city is. That's a harsh truth people don't want to deal with, and it's something we don't want to see and pray doesn't happen. But the Russians are already showing signs. That they're going to have indiscriminate artillery fire, rocket fire, and other methods right into these cities, right into the heart of the population where innocent people live, where innocent people work, where people who could not get out and could not leave are going to be trapped. Now, we've talked about the heroism of the Ukrainian people, how they are arming people, just regular people taking up arms to defend their cities. This is what they're facing a Russian military that's got a lot of pride on the line, a leader in Vladimir Putin who cannot lose a war and lose face and lose his positioning. And there's a very real chance that they start steamrolling through these cities, destroying everything in their path just to try to save face and steal a victory after their initial efforts failed. We are seeing something that we have not seen in a while. We saw it in Syria and Georgia, but we didn't see it. We didn't pay attention to it. We didn't listen to it. We didn't learn the lessons. We talk about World War II and other conflicts and how brutal they are and how bad they were and how we should never do that again. But then when it happens on a small scale, we didn't say anything. We didn't stop it. We didn't prevent it. We've talked about on this program before the silliness of people screaming and hollering about forever wars like it's a warm blanket that will keep the bad people away. That's not how it works. War is inevitable. Because there's people like Vladimir Putin who want war. And one way or the other, they're going to get their war. You either prevent the war. You fight the smaller wars when they show you what they are. In places like Syria, in places like Georgia, in places like the Crimean Peninsula. He showed us who he was. He told us what he was capable of. We didn't listen. We didn't step in. We weren't willing to stop him then. And nobody else was either for that matter. And now here we are with the 44 million of Ukraine, the only people standing up to Vladimir Putin, mostly out of necessity because he invaded them illegally. When we start seeing these horrible pictures come in, make sure you don't avert your gaze to what war really is. It's ugly. It's brutal. It's bad people doing bad things to innocent people. And innocent people have to start doing bad things back just to survive. We haven't seen war like this. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. It's been happening all over the world. A lot of us just didn't pay attention to it. Well, now you need to pay attention to it and you need to see what it looks like and you need to not avert your gaze. And then maybe next time when people are saying we need to prevent war or we need to fight a smaller scale conflict to avoid a larger scale conflict, it'll register what it means. It's not about not having wars. It's about managing people and the bad actors of the world so that we don't have a major war that kills thousands of people, displaces millions others, and changes the world order as we know it, which is what's happening right now. Because make no mistake, whatever happens in Ukraine going forward, everything's changed now. This, Russia is isolated, and they will be destabilized from this, and it will have ripple effects for decades, probably generations, to come from this. There'll be good that comes out of it too, but there's going to be a lot of bad before we get to that good. Even if the Ukrainians hold up or God forbid, if they fall to the Russians, there's a lot of ugly coming and we need to learn the lesson this time that war is always ugly. It's always bad, but it's something you're going to fight sooner or later. Let's do a little better job of preventing it. Let's do a little better job of fighting contained wars and the small ones when people like Vladimir Putin tell us what they're about before it becomes a worldwide endangering conflict like we have in ukraine right now more hotel right after this hi welcome back to Hurtel. now we've been talking a lot about ukraine and russia because it's the biggest story in the globe we have a war of aggression for the first time in a long long time of this scale but it's also brought out the silliness and we need to direct that a little bit because our thing here is we turn down the noise cycle news Uh, We are doing the freedom fries thing again. If you don't remember back um, during (laughs) other times, there's been silliness like during the uh, war on terror. When we first went into Iraq, France opposed us. We're going to have freedom fries instead of French fries and silliness like this. Uh, This is all performative nonsense. Um, Our buddy Cooper, uh, who has been on this program before on air coop, uh, Dale Cooper from uh, WCHS in West Virginia. He had a great tweet. Uh, people are banning Russian vodka. They want it off their distributor shelves. Now, first of all, if you're demanding the removal of them from a distributor, you're telling me you don't understand how distribution works. That's not hurting the Russians any. Uh, It doesn't hurt them one little bit because the distributors already purchased that. The Russians have already got their money. If it's on a store shelf, they've already got their money. You're just hurting your local distributor and or liquor store or your state ABC store if you're under that particular tyranny that one of these days we're going to get around to talking to. But Coop had a great line on Twitter. He said, can we have one darn thing minute of thinking for crying out loud? I'm paraphrasing some language here. Coop, the total amount of vodka imported to the U.S. from Russia in 2017 was 555,845 proof gallons of 39 million proof gallons, meaning Russian vodka makes up only around 1.4% of foreign vodka in the U.S. You're not really doing anything here. This is all performative. Semi related. Have you ever heard of a Moscow mule? That's a uh, popular drink, apparently. I have not partaken uh, myself, but I'm told. So we're going to ban Moscow mules because, you know, Moscow, Russian, bad. The only problem was it was invented in New York City. New York City? Yes, the Moscow mule was created in New York City. All of it, the serving in the copper cup, it's actually a play off what was called the American mule. The mule. Doesn't have anything to do with a farm animal, it has to do with the way it's flavored, it gives you a little kick in there. But the Moscow mule also nothing to do with Russia. This stuff is all performative. Uh, you can do it if you want to, it makes you feel good, but it's not really accomplishing anything. It's just something for you to put on social media to make you look like you're doing something when you're not really doing anything. There's actually things you can do and things that you should be doing with that same amount of energy and bandwidth. May I suggest you get on those items, and put aside the silliness for the deadly serious business of opposing what Russia is doing in Ukraine. We've already talked about it, the war crimes, all these things. Silly performative things don't help. Find something substantive to do with your time and social media accounts, please. It doesn't honor the victims. It doesn't honor the dead. It doesn't honor the world we're going to have to remake in a new image now that the old order has passed away by doing silly nonsense on the internet. Just a little PSA. Take it to heart now. It'll save you a lot of trouble and embarrassment later. More Herd right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. She is back, as you can see if you're watching on YouTube. Brooke Medina, our good friend. Uh, she does public relations for the John Locke Foundation. But more importantly, over the weekend, She was there as part of the first uh, North Carolina U.S. Senate GOP primary debate happened. Uh, Full disclosure, I was actually supposed to be there and I had a family issue come up. So what did I miss?
0: You missed a rousing debate, that's for sure, but I mean, it's okay. Thankfully, it was online, and uh, so you uh, you are able to view it later on, and in perpetuity, as one of the debate co-moderators said. I'm glad to be back, though, to discuss what happened in that debate and uh, lend some thoughts to how people might uh, might approach the, the takes that the Senate candidates offered.
1: Yeah, I thought the moderators actually did a pretty good job clipping this along. You had a couple of pros on the stage, though with some of these candidates. so But it was it was a well-run debate. It wasn't one of these circus ones. Uh, I thought they covered a lot, but it did get heated in a couple places. We'll talk about that. Let's start big picture, though. Um, one of the reasons we do this, the way we're covering elections on HerdTel this year, we talk to people there in the rooms in the states. We have uh, Senator Burr, who's been there for a long time. He is resigning, uh, retiring, I guess you could say, a little bit of a scandal with uh, some insider trading and that sort of thing, not seeking re-election. What's the overall mood here looking at this Senate seat? Because it is one of the premier ones on the task. People think this is a high dollar one. There is a uh, understanding. People think the uh, Republicans will hold this seat. What is your overall view of the race, though?
0: Yeah, I think that people on either side of the aisle should not take anything for granted as it pertains to this race. Um, It will be one of the most expensive races, Senate races. uh, but we know that money doesn't actually win elections. So we've seen this in Virginia. We've seen it also here in North Carolina with various statewide races and money is known as no guarantee necessarily. Uh, However, I think this debate or this race is going to become increasingly contentious, unfortunately, but such as politics in 2022 in the United States. Um, There's a lot riding on this on this uh, debate or this race. Excuse me, I'm in debate mode still, but referring to the broader race, there's a lot riding on it, of course, um, including the control of the Senate.
1: Yeah. And this particular debate started out interesting just in the format of it, because we had four podiums, but we only had three candidates. Uh, Ted Budd, who is running, he was down at CPAC and elected not to come back. Now, Representative Walker did go to CPAC and made the trip back. Both, how did that land in the room? Uh, We know what it looks like to us, but you were in the room with the other people. Obviously, it was brought up by the other candidates. But what? How did that land with folks?
0: Yeah, I don't think uh, North Carolina voters were very forgiving of Ted Budd for for failing on this debate. He had been invited. Uh, with, you know, plenty of advance notice. Uh, we kept a podium up there for him in the event that he did show up, just like Congressman Walker. He was, uh, he was there at CPAC and he could have come to North Carolina to engage, um, but chose not to. He decided to watch on Facebook instead.
1: Yeah. Now, Bud is interesting because um, we were just talking uh, yesterday with our friend from Ohio, where Donald Trump has not endorsed anybody. And it's kind of become the feeding frenzy for the people that want it. North Carolina is the opposite. He endorsed Ted Budd really, really early. In fact, I remember doing radio on Big Talker the Monday after. And one of the county reps was in studio with us. This is a diehard Trump guy, by the way. And he's like, no, 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 that's not an official endorsement. He didn't tell us that. Like he really threw everybody for a loop with the Ted Budd endorsement. But then since then, Ted Budd has a bunch of club for growth ads and not a whole lot else. He's not really running a campaign that anybody can tell other than saying, I got endorsed by Trump. And then when you do something like this, we have a narrative forming here by Ted Budd's own hand of, I've got an endorsement, but I'm not really running much of a Senate race in the way we understand to win the state of North Carolina, do we?
0: Yeah, it's it's strange that they have chosen to, to sort of hide from the, from the debate. And I think it stands in stark contrast to, uh, to the candidates that actually chose to attend this debate. And I know, um, the bug campaign is stating that they just chose to wait until filing was closed before engaging in a debate. And that's certainly within their right to do, but just thinking as a communications professional optically, I think that was a, that was an unwise choice because if you, if you have really good ideas that you want to ensure are getting in front of as many voter eyes as possible, particularly these GOP primary voters, this was an excellent opportunity to do that. Um, This goes though to the broader issue, related to Trump endorsements. Um, Our polling, which we do uh, public opinion polling here at the John Locke Foundation, is called the Civitas poll. We recently did a statewide poll where 49% of GOP likely primary voters told us we are more likely to vote for the Trump backed candidate in the Senate race. But a lot of them, almost half of them didn't even know Ted Budd was that candidate. And so that speaks to the bud campaigns, I I would say their lack of actually even, you know, uh, highlighting this Trump endorsement effectively.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned Walker. He's the opposite of this. Um, He was a representative. He was actually in Republican leadership in Congress, basically got redistricted out of his seat up in the Greensboro area. Uh, He's been the opposite, though. He's going to all the small functions. He's doing local radio. He's doing local media. He's going to pig pickings. What what he could with the covid stuff but just for example he's doing all that traditional small campaigning stuff he's been all over the state he's doing local media he's been the anti bud um how did it come across when he actually got on the stage with some of the better known names like pat mccrory and such how did he land in the room
0: yeah actually i think he landed very well in the room um he came across, despite the fact that he repeatedly referred to just, you know, his um, his record in Washington. And so there were a couple of other candidates, particularly Marjorie Eastman, who tried to juxtapose themselves as being an outsider and not within Washington. But uh, Mark Walker doubled down on his record in Washington, you know, stating that he was very proud of it. Uh, And I think Honestly, from what I could tell reading the room, that resonated well with the audience, Um, not because they were they, they weren't associating him with a swamp like creature. When people talk about Washington politicians, they were associating him with a principled politician who was getting things done in Washington. So. As far as my read could go, and after talking with people who were there in the debate room, asking them, you know, who do you think won this debate? Um, There were a couple of people that did state that they thought Marker won this one.
1: Do you think Walker gets credit? Because this, to, to be clear, this is part of a larger conference. This is a very engaged, politically savvy audience for this debate. Did you get the sense that he's getting extra credit points because of the way he's running a campaign, especially contrasted to Ted Budd? who isn't really campaigning in a traditional sense, and on top of it, no-showed the debate. Do you think he kind of just got some extra credit points for that? Is this audience savvy enough and going like, hey, this guy's working hard. Let's give him a second look or another hearing here.
0: Yeah, even though that maybe wasn't necessarily spoken, uh, just reading even the social media comments that were coming through during the debate uh, that d- he did stand in stark contrast to Bud on that front. Uh, there were a lot of comments, even on social media, as well as in person, as to where is Bud, where's Bud, where's Bud, uh, whereas a lot of a lot of accolades for Mark Walker's campaign, as well as, uh, uh, to their credit, Marjorie Eastman and Pat McCrory. Both of them, there were certainly people that, uh, you could tell we're, we're rallying around each of these different candidates. Um, and then I would say those who were inclined to support Bud, Bud or probably do support Bud, um, I think they were just disappointed that he wasn't there.
1: Yeah, before we move on to the other candidates, though, uh, the Trump endorsement, just to put a bow on that part of it, because that's kind of the narrative for this midterm for the Republicans. What do you do about Trump? Um does it feel like the Trump endorsement of Bud is just going to fade over time? Because the debate was, is he going to endorse Walker? Is he going to endorse Bud? He came out and did Bud right out of the blue. It, is that just going to fade and not be that important by the time we get into to May here and people start actually going to vote, do you think?
0: Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's anybody's guess. But my thought is, it doesn't seem like they capitalized it on, as effectively as they should have early on. Um, with that many GOP primary voters unaware that Bud was even the Trump-endorsed candidate, to me, that shows that their campaign just did not effectively capitalize on that. That doesn't mean that they can't later. Um, and Ted Bud does have national you know, name recognition. He was on Fox News the day of the debate. I saw him. He was giving interviews related to Ukraine. Um, so he definitely does have visibility. Uh, but I do wonder if they uh, if they missed an opportunity in capitalizing on the Trump endorsement with this audience, who that actually does matter for. Um, but, you know, anything can change between now and May.
1: Yeah, it can. We're going to continue to talk about the GOP-U.S. Uh, Senate debate in North Carolina with our friend Brooke Medina of the John Locke Institute. She was there. She was in the room. Uh, the heavy hitter, uh, Pat McCrory, former governor, uh, who's the leader in the race by most of the polling. We're going to get into his performance. We're also going to talk about the other person on the stage, Eastman, how she did, because this was a lot of folks' first look at her. So more on this debate with Brooke Medina right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd, tell Andrew Donson, joined by our good friend, Brooke Medina, who was in the room that it happened, or however that line from that musical my kids are always listening to constantly and tell me I should like and I resist. Uh, I'm joking, Hamilton fans, don't send your hate mail, I know what it is. Uh, let, let's get to the, the big gun here. Pat McCrory, former governor, I find him fascinating in this race for this reason. Because he was governor, he lost in 2016. We know about the bathroom bill stuff. We know about the tight with Roy Cooper. He kind of sat out the Trump years, though. He was doing radio in Charlotte, kind of kept a lower profile. He did some did some lobbying stuff in with for the party in D.C., but he kind of sat out the Trump years a lot. So he doesn't have a lot of the Trump stuff on him that a lot of Republicans do. And even though, obviously, Ted Budd got the endorsement. So Trump's not on his side here. I just think he's a very interesting case study of a pre-Trump Republican navigating the post-Trump GOP um and it's really interesting to watch him is that something you take away from it too is like this is kind of a weird little test case we have here
0: yeah i think it's really interesting um and perhaps that uh the way he runs his campaign serves as a case study for other other politicians or uh, political hopefuls who are running for state uh, statewide and federal offices you know this is this is the way in which you sort of navigate this, this current moment where Trump still is a large figure within the Republican Party. Um, so you, you don't take up a never-Trumper mantle, nor an always-Trumper mantle, but sort of look for, uh, look for strategic ways to navigate this so that you're not alienating important uh, elements of the Republican and, to some degree, unaffiliated parties.
1: Now, the candidates mostly attacked Ted Budd because that's low-hanging fruit because he ain't there and the podium's empty and it's a horrible optic, so they all took their shots at that. But the real fireworks of this debate was Marjorie K. Eastman and Pat McCrory. For those not familiar with Marjorie K. Eastman, and a lot of folks aren't, and this was probably the first view and listen a lot of people got to her other than just seeing the name in the news, what kind of an impression did she leave standing on the stage with somebody like Pat McCrory who everybody in North Carolina knows and Walker who's at least vaguely familiar she's kind of the new face how did she present herself
0: yeah I think that um, based on what I was seeing in the audience what I uh, you know what I read reaction wise uh, among the voters who were watching online I think it was a little bit of a mixture I you know, it is it is different when someone this is kind of like their first introduction to the statewide GOP primary voter audience. And she definitely relied heavily on her military credentials um, and her experience as a combat veteran. Um, and I think that landed differently with various parts of this primary audience. Uh, so time will still tell. I met her in person uh, before the debate, and she's a very uh, she's a very, kind and uh and uh, you know just she seemed really really excited to be there and engage with voters um so i don't know i think she needs some more time out there before before voters actually decide
1: now on paper that makes sense because north carolina is one of the largest population military states uh of course fort bragg camp lejeune lots of other smaller locations uh goldsboro Huge military population in North Carolina. It's something that's ingrained in the state. Full disclosure here, you have ties to the military uh, as a dependent and also as a military brat, we call it and say it lovingly. Uh, I'm a veteran. The thing about that, though, is when you start using that in a place that's very military literate like North Carolina is, those things have their own language and decorums and the ways to go about them. I'm not sure she's hitting the right notes, pulling that out right from the go with a state where folks, they, they know how these things work. You can't just say it. And to me, some of it came off. Um, if it was a song, I'd say it was a little pitchy. You understand what I'm getting at? Is that how it came across to you too?
0: I'm picking up what you're laying down and I get it. Um, it was, it was, it was repeated so many times. And I think that particularly within the military population. And like you said, North Carolina being comprised of so many veterans and veteran families, there is a way in which to, uh, to highlight one's service, but it also needs to come across as almost like an understated humility about it where it's like, yeah, I, I did serve and this is why I'm well equipped to govern well. Uh, but it's not you know, a club that we use to bang. You know, the other candidates over the head with. It's just no. I, I my life is about service. It is about caring for my fellow man, and um and that's why I'm here because I love North Carolinians and I think that is probably the more advantageous way and also heartfelt way in which to, in which to highlight one's service. And so I think that that will be refined as she continues her campaign. But I believe you know, if you're, if this is your first time within the, you know, a a large statewide audience, you're looking for opportunities to really distinguish yourself, especially among other Republican candidates. And, um, so I think she was attempting to capitalize on that, but I believe it should be refined a little bit more.
1: Yeah. And the problem she has is she was on stage with a very experienced politician in Pat McCrory who was ready for it. And he broke out, um, we used to call it carpent-bagging. I don't think we call it that anymore, and I think that's unfair for the situation here. But he brought up the fact that when she, she gave her spiel about, you know, my husband retired from military, I retired from military, we love North Carolina. Look, that's a story a lot of, a lot of people in North Carolina have. They, they, they came here from somewhere else with the military. They, that's all fine and good. Where she ran into a little bit of trouble here is this is a GOP uh, primary. And she had just registered as a GOP member six weeks before she filed. Now, she she says it's because she was, again, here we go back to the pitchiness, because military people understand these things. She says, well, I was military, so I stayed unaffiliated because I wanted to be uh, apolitical. Okay, I, I don't really buy that, but I'll take her word for it on the face of it. But she got out of the military in 2012, and this is 2021. McCrory had all that oppo research ready at hand and Got into it with her and kind of laid it out, but that's how it showed on the video. How did it land in the room? That exchange, that was probably the hottest exchange between candidates on the stage of the whole debate. How did it land in the room, and who got the better of that?
0: Yeah, that was a tense moment um, because she really did. Uh, I think uh, one of the news outlets that covered it was stating, you know, she clapped back at McCrory and she really she really pushed back on him on that and. As a person who is re- registered as an unaffiliated voter and you know grew up my dad was a thirty year veteran, my husband was a twenty year veteran, I get that desire for being more apolitical and neutral doesn't mean though I mean being in the service doesn't preclude you from registering with a party. That was certainly a tense moment during the debate, and I think that uh, it almost seemed like she allowed. McCrory to unnerve her a little bit. And I think that that was perhaps a missed opportunity. Um, I get what she was trying to, to communicate to him and sort of, you know, like, you know, here are my boundaries. Don't mess with me. Don't tread on me kind of thing. Um, But again, McCrory is a politically savvy individual. And so he knows how to navigate that where he was trying to downplay it and said, wow, that really riled you up sort of thing. Um, Mark Walker, it was funny though, during this moment and it actually elicited a laugh, uh, laughter from the audience, but as McCrory and Eastman are going back and forth on this, Walker, who is taller than all of the candidates there, he starts like sinking down in his in his podium and disappears so that McCrory and Eastman are just facing each other. And um, and so that kind of broke the tension a little bit. But um, I'm not sure how that landed with the audience. I mean, my husband was there. He's a veteran. Uh, and he appreciated Eastman's comments and her pushback. And so, uh, and there were other veterans who maybe I think pushed back a little bit on that. So who knows? <laughs>
1: yeah. And just for the record, I'm unaffiliated too. That's what they call independence in North Carolina. And, um, the fastest growing group of voters in North Carolina, by the way, you do the polling data. You could speak to that some other time. Okay. A couple other points on this real quick obviously this happened over the weekend. So Ukraine was on everybody's mind. I thought everybody kind of handled the Ukraine question pretty uniformly and well. How did it land in the room? And was that on people's minds in this debate? We're not in a real foreign policy way, but this sure seems to have burned through a lot of other stuff, doesn't it? But how did it land in the room, the debate, the candidates, the audience? Was it something that was on people's mind and how did they react to it?
0: It was certainly on people's minds throughout the conference. Uh, This was a two-day conference. It was sold out, filled with Filled with voters, many of them veterans, but all of them patriotic, and uh, yeah, this was an important question to ask. And I would say each of the candidates—they uh, were clear in you know that there is, this is absolutely inexcusable. There were no Putin apologists on that stage, uh, nor throughout the conference. And so, um, this is one of those things where it was a unifying topic, and um, and I think that if any of the candidates stood out on that front. Well, they were all pretty, pretty similar, actually. But if any of the candidates stood out on that front, it would have been Marjorie Eastman just for the reason that that's where she really should have highlighted her military service and could have um, and did to some degree. Um, But I think all of them were were pretty lockstep with one another on that.
1: Tell us something that maybe didn't make the TV part of the debate, but you're backstage, you're mingling, you're actually helping to run this event. You see the candidates interact with people, you know, their handlers and their staffs are with them. What What's something that we didn't see, but you saw that you think maybe is something we ought to know about and should take away from this gathering of the clans of the GOP Senate primary candidates?
0: Oh, wow. That's a that's a good question. Um, I would say, like I, like I mentioned just a little bit earlier, Marjorie Eastman was really warm and kind. Uh, it was nice to meet her and her son and her husband was, I believe, special Forces service member. Uh, So it was nice to meet them as a family and see them in that light. And Congressman Walker, he's just really down to earth, like really down to earth. And uh, so what people saw on stage was actually, you know, what, what I saw backstage uh, related to him. So I thought that those were two, um, two takeaways that I had.
1: The dynamic of this race talking to Brooke Medina from the go has pretty much been pat mccrory has the name recognition he has the money he has the network built in and the for lack of a better term and i know it's because of the ted budd stuff we already touched on but just to generalize uh the trump vote was going to be splintered between everybody else uh has anything changed the dynamic of that race after this debate now has anybody stopped the momentum of pat mccrory is anybody gaining on Pat mccrory do you think
0: Ooh, that's a good question. Well, according to Ted Bud's campaign, this debate is, or this race is now between Eastman and Bud. Um, But I would think that's more of a just political statement that they've made to create, uh, to kind of like, well, to take a jab at McCrory and then Walker. I think that our next poll will be very telling on this. We'll do another poll within a few weeks from now. But to me, it seems that McCrory is probably still Pretty pretty secure in in being a top contender in this race. Um, Eastman, uh, you know this debate probably you know it increased her name recognition a bit, but it will be interesting to see how the polling shakes out on this. And I would say, you know, those who maybe were unfamiliar with Walker in the debate format, even if they recognized his name and stuff, but maybe unfamiliar with really where he did stand on some important policy issues. Uh, this gave them, it seems to me, a little bit more to go on um, and inform their vote and contrast him with maybe a McCrory.
1: I mean, just to put a bow on this and rabbit, I'm talking to Brooke Medina about the uh, NCGOP U.S. Senate debate, the first one. Do you see a difference in the Pat McCrory now and the Pat McCrory four or five years ago that lost the governor's race? It, it seems to me he has retooled himself, not in noticeable ways where you could ding him on it. But I do see differences in how he talks, how he communicates. I guess some of it's just experience. He went and did talk radio for three or four years. I think that's helped him because he did have a real weird kind of standard delivery a lot of times when he was serving as governor. I think maybe the talk radio. But does that come across to you, too? Does this seem like a different Pat McCrory? Not not just on the policy stuff, just his delivery, the way he campaigns. He's doing smaller events. He did did the big talk radio, small local radio. Is this a man that has learned his lessons and adjusted? Does that come across to you?
0: He certainly comes across as very politically savvy. I think that they, uh, his campaign, is strategic, and they're thinking through second and third order of effects of you know what he does and the stances he takes. Um, they have a long-term vision for this, and I think that that will serve him well. Is that he, um, his campaign, and himself are just. Uh, able to, I would say, more deftly navigate um, some of the more political landmines that, that would await a Republican candidate here in North Carolina for such a big race.
1: Yeah, no substitute for experience, right? Um, Brooke Medina, it was a great event. Uh, I had a lot of friends there that I was texting with back and forth. Everybody seemed to enjoy it. So congratulations on pulling it off. Uh, let people know what you got coming up next. Now that you got the Carolina Liberty Conference out of the way, and where they can follow you on social media until we get you back on Hertel again.
0: Thank you, Andrew. It really was a, a good event. I I heard... Raved reviews from everyone and the John Locke Foundation staff just pulled it off. They did an excellent job. And the aim was to make sure everybody had a good time and everybody had a good time. I saw people walking around with a yummy drink, a cigar, and uh, just talking and, um, and catching up, networking. And so it felt almost like a family reunion, um, although maybe not just as familial, <laughs> but people were really, uh, there was a lot of of friendliness and fellowship and camaraderie there. And I'm grateful for that. Um, And so coming up ahead, we've got more statewide polling um, that will be released in March. So by the time that this comes out, uh, be on the lookout for that. But we also are going to begin doing statewide events such as uh, election integrity events, just uh, equipping voters with... important information um, as they go into this election season, learning how that they can be volunteers at their local election sites. So we're going across the state offering that. We're going across the state offering grassroots training related to school choice issues. Um, And then we're just we're hiring. I'm hiring in the communications department. So if anybody who is listening right now is interested, please go to johnlock.org. And you can go to the About Us section. And we actually have a few different job openings available because we keep growing. And that's a good problem to have. But we're looking for solid, liberty minded, smart, articulate people to join our team.
1: Uh, Brooke Medina, I always enjoy talking to you. I tell you what, let's just go ahead and plan it when that poll comes out. We want you on to discuss it. And we will talk about it. uh, And I appreciate your friendship. I will make it next time, I promise. (laughs) I'm sorry I missed out on this one. But thank you for the insight today. And we'll be talking to you more as this very important race unfolds. Thank you, ma'am.
0: Thank you, Andrew.
1: Unfortunately, When we come into certain things that happen worldwide Uh, in this day and age, the first thing we want to do is throw money at it. We talked about this with the trucker stuff up in Canada. Everybody started just slinging money at people without having any idea where it was going, what it was getting used for. My thing was, why does this a demonstration? Need nine million dollars or five million dollars? The second time they tried to do it, Uh, we should be more observant of where we're sending our money. So, of course, when the Ukraine thing kicked off, a lot of people just wanted to start firing off money at Ukraine. The only problem is. Getting money from the U.S. or another country into Ukraine, which is currently having a war, is kind of tough. Uh, this is from WWLP, that's uh, 22 News, uh, for those of you keeping track, in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Quote, during a time of humanitarian crisis like what we are seeing in Ukraine, one of the best ways to help is through charities. But you'll want to make sure your donations are going to the right hands. Western Massachusetts residents voiced their support for the Ukrainian people during this difficult time. But there are many ways to help. Here's some suggestions. Do your own research. Look into the charity to see if it is experienced in emergency relief in Ukraine. This is the biggest one. Don't start giving money to people who have never done anything in Ukraine because they're not going to have a clue how to actually get it into Ukraine. There's specific things when you're dealing with overseas countries. There's established charities already in there, already on the ground. They don't have to build up a massive organization to get there, which is going to eat up all the money you're donating. This is a big one. Make sure it's somebody that already knows how to work in that country continuing, seeing how that charity is rated, find out what percentage of your donation will go to relief efforts. This is the other really big one. And Upfront Charity will tell you the amount of percentage of all donations that go to their overhead or go to their costs, or they may phrase it a couple different ways. Basically, they take some of the donations to run the organization. Now, that's all well and good, but that number will tell you whether or not it's a good organization. If they have a very low amount of overhead, and most of that money is going to whatever the cause is, you usually have a pretty good charity. If you have a charity where 40, 50, 60% of the donations are going to the organization, you don't have a charity. You have a business model, and you should adjust accordingly. Continuing with the piece real quick, experts also recommend you be on the lookout for scammers seeking to confuse donors with names that sound similar to the charities you know, but are not. You can look into things like the Better Business Bureau There's a thing called Charity Watch. There's Charity Navigator. Both of those are .orgs, CharityWatch.org, CharityNavigator.org, Give.org. They all have rating systems. Don't ever give money to anything that goes for politics, that goes for culture, that goes to your church, that goes to anything. Never give out money to anybody that you haven't fully vetted and investigated yourself. It's important. There's a lot of scammers out there. Times are tough out there. Don't put your heart on money to anybody that is unworthy of it, and a lot of charities aren't couple of those points i just want to reiterate if they're not already doing work in ukraine or at least in eastern europe probably don't want to give them money because they don't know how to do it and they're going to have to spin up and spend a lot of money to get in there if they have a back history of doing untoward things of any kind any kind of scandal find another organization you folks that want to give great appreciate it do it smartly do it wisely and be informed more hotel right after this Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. We always try to end on an uplifting or lighter note. You might need a few tissues for this one, though, but I promise you it's a good story. Uh, Fox56.com, 11-year-old Lackawanna County boy honored for his charity work battling pediatric cancer. Uh, South Abington Township, Lackawanna County, Wolf, an 11-year-old boy in this county who overcame pediatric cancer, launched a charity dedicated to help others do the same with Matthew's Hope for Miracles. This past Monday, the South Abington Board of Supervisors presented Resolution 2203 to Matthew McDowell, declaring him the citizen of the day. There's a picture of him. He's a very cute young man. I feel like I really don't deserve it. I've already gotten so much. God has blessed me with so much, and I just feel like some other kids should have gotten it, said Matthew McDowell, as he humbly discussed his award. It's basically a nonprofit with a focus on raising funds for pediatric cancer. We do a lot of different events throughout the year to raise awareness, raise money. And this year we also created a new subfund, which is going to help local families and children who are battling pediatric cancer, said Linda McDowell, Matthew's mother, and the organization he founded. Matthew was diagnosed with a rare form of pediatric kidney cancer called Wilms tumor when he was just three years old. And he came up with the idea to start the charity in 2018 to help other children going through the same struggle. He has battled this disease five times. Wow. Without him. We wouldn't be the family we are today. We know so many more people came alongside us when we were struggling. When Matthew was at his worst, we just have it in our hearts that this is what we're here to do. We're going to help others through their charity work. They have already raised over $65,000 to help battle pediatric cancer. It feels great because I love kids. And when I grow up, I want to be a doctor because I don't want kids to suffer like I have, Matthew said. I just want to make them happy. I want them to have a great life and just be a normal kid. Like I am now, I want to keep this foundation for as long as I possibly can and just keep raising money and helping children. I just really want to make children smile and make them have as much of a normal life as possible. They're currently planning things like 5k runs, uh, and other things. They're dedicating the event to Matthew's friend who tragically lost his battle with pediatric cancer in January. They're accepting sponsor donations. If you like involve the website is on the web, the website links are on here. This is fox56.com. Excellent story. What a great young man. Um, if you ever look into things like children that go through this thing, like the Saints Jude kids, over and over and over again, we've covered a couple of the stories. It's amazing how many of them, if they survive and grow into adulthood, they always end up doing something to give back. They understand it, they get it, and they want to pass on what was given to them. God bless him. Hope he's doing well. Good luck with the charity. That'll do it for her to tell today. Once again, appreciate all the support, the reaching out, those of you that write in, those of you that comment and leave ratings, whatever platform you're watching this, whether it's the YouTube channel and or and all the podcasting platforms. You can do both, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. Only cost you a click wherever you're at. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you leave us comments. Make sure you leave ratings. We really appreciate it. Those are important. Let people know our program is worth checking out. We're going to keep trying to turn down the noise of the news cycle. A lot of stuff going on. Got amazing feedback about yesterday's show. Really proud of it proud of this show too got a lot of good stuff coming make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any of it so until we talk to you again tomorrow uh wherever you and yours are we hope you are well we hope you are well fed and we'll talk to you tomorrow for more Herd Tell all the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com